Hello everyone, my name is Joanne Lockwood and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk That's S-double-E, changehappen.co.uk You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf and let's get going. Today is episode 84 with the title Unlocking Inclusive Communications. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Suzanne Wertheim. Suzanne describes herself as a linguistic anthropologist. And when I asked Suzanne to describe her superpower, she said that she sees patterns that other people don't see. Hello, Suzanne. Welcome to the show. Hello, Joanne. It is genuinely a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, likewise. We've had a great chat in the green room already, so I'm really, really, really excited about this. Um, So, Suzanne, tell me, unlocking communications, tell me about that. So, I said my superpower was seeing patterns that other people can't see. And this is the superpower of almost everybody who is a linguist or a linguistic anthropologist. And so, I am here to talk to people here generally in the world and here on this podcast about how can we be more inclusive in our communications. And inclusive communication, in some respects, is as simple as just it's the modern etiquette. It is 21st century etiquette. But if you want to be more pattern-based and more behavior-based, I like to talk about inclusive language and inclusive communication as a way of communicating in a set of behaviors. A lot of people will talk about it as a list of words. Here are bad words and here are good words. But I like to go beyond that and have a very behavioral focus. What are people doing with their language? So when we communicate inclusively, people feel seen and heard and valued. People feel like they are taken into consideration and like they matter. By contrast, when we use what I call problematic language, and there are lots of words that people will use that maybe end with ist or ism, but I like to just call it problematic language. Problematic language comes in many forms and has really negative outcomes. Um, It can damage relationships. It lowers trust. It drives people away. And it harms all kinds of relationships. And by relationships, I mean um, personal relationships. So between family members, friends, colleagues, romantic partners. But I also mean business relationships. Uh, could be a, still interpersonal between a, a, a recruiter and a client, a, a recruiter and a candidate. Um, but it could also be uh, a marketing message and an audience or um, customer experience, software interfaces, and clients who become so irritated that they stop using your product. So that's what I mean by patterns. The patterns that I talk about for inclusive communication can be both one-on-one and um, media and planned communications that go out and affect many, many people, sometimes millions of people. You're speaking my language. You're speaking my language. Um I mean, one thing that people always come to me and say is that they're so afraid of getting it wrong. And that creates this kind of lean back approach to people because it, well, I've, I've never had a conversation with someone who is black. I've never had some conversation with someone who's transgender or has a disability. Or it, What if I say the wrong thing? That's the biggest fear people say is the fear of getting it wrong. It is a thing that I hear as well. And um, it is one of the reasons that I wrote my book book because people would feel better after a workshop with me and a workshop would be very uh, dedicated to the precise thing. So if you bring me in for recruiters, I'll do inclusive language for recruiters. If you bring me in for sales team, I'll do inclusive language for sales. So we're covering some things, but we have a limited amount of time together. And people would say to me, oh, my people are still nervous or I'm still nervous or executives would say to me, there are so many things I'm supposed to cover in an all hands meeting or when I'm interviewing with somebody and I'm really afraid of getting canceled 
So some people are worried about the wrath of the internet or getting canceled. It's more self-focused. And some people are more worried about hurting somebody else. And so this lack of resources out there has been bothering me for a long time. And so this is why I realized it wasn't a question of ego where I thought, I simply must write a book, right? It was really more people kept on being so stressed out and so nervous. And when you're paralyzed by fear and you don't say anything, sometimes it it really lands. Just the silence is communication in and of itself, and it will land very badly on people who expect you to reach out. So this is exactly why I um, decided to do the work that I do. And I will say that um, I, I you, you might have wanted to ask me this later, and I'm just going to say it right now. One of the reasons that my discussion of inclusive language and inclusive communication is different from other people's is I'm the only person I know that starts with behavior rather than identity. So a lot of people will come and say, there are so many people in the world, I can't keep track of them. I grew up in a very homogenous way. My workplace is very homogenous. I don't know. And so it can feel so overwhelming and so exhausting to think about all the people in the world and all the world's words related to all the people in the world can feel like too much. So that's why I've come up with six principles that allow you to learn more and also make mistakes and, and correct them in a way that you feel like you always have a North Star. So I'm just going to say them. I'm not going to wait for you to team me up, and I'll just say them. They are um, reflect reality, show respect, draw people in, incorporate other perspectives, prevent erasure, and recognize pain points. So these are all ways that people want themselves to be treated. In some respects, they're kind of a golden rule of interactions. And so if you can be precise about when somebody is different from you, how do you show respect or how do you make sure you're not marginalizing them or how do you recognize the pain points? These are things that can be small research projects that that people can get a grip on rather than this long list of words that feels nebulous and PS is changing all the time. So you can't just go by memorizing lists of words because by the time you memorized it, there's a good chance that some of the things that were okay aren't okay anymore. Yeah, I, th- I think you hit the, the the nail on the head there, to use a British term, and that translates into American. Perfectly um, well. Perfectly well, excellent. I think the key thing for me is you actually care about the how the other person's going to feel when you talk to them. I think if I, I think you mentioned it in respect and the other other elements of your six points, but if I have enough care about your feelings, your needs, your use the word identity if you like, your, your your lived experience, what matters to you, what makes you happy, what makes you sad. If I care deeply about that, that I want a positive communication, I want a positive outcome from our conversation, then I think that's the basis. Then everything builds on the fact that I want this to go well. And if I don't know all the, as you say, every single word in the in the, in the in the dictionary, I don't have to know every single word. I just have to know that I will not get, always get it right. And I appreciate that intent isn't everything. You know, the impact k- kicks in there and a bit of accountability as well, making sure I own my words. But the, the important thing there is I have, to, I have to really care that I want you to have a positive experience. And that, that for me, that's always been the root of it. If I care enough, I will do my best to get it right. I think that a combination of caring enough, being open to critical feedback to fix mistakes in the moment, and doing some prep work, if you can do those three, then you can have a successful conversation with anybody. I think that there are some people who are on the receiving end of people being ignorant about what their lived experience is to the point where it's exhausting, right? So I, I don't want to just say that if you say to somebody, well, just educate me, or if I say a wrong word, please tell me, because a lot of times people who are on the receiving end of these things are just done, just done. But if you show that you've already done some homework and you come in and you say, well, I know this, so is, is this okay? Like, I, I know I shouldn't say, hey, guys, um, so I, I, I'm i going to say, hey, folks, or hey, people, is that okay with you is, is a story we can talk about a little bit later about a sales call gone wrong and then gone right again. But I think that if you have that combo and show that you've cared enough to put in some work in advance, then people were go- are going to feel... They're not educating you from scratch. The burden of education isn't on them. The burden of explaining to you in a way that won't make you upset or angry isn't on them because you've put in that work. And so that's why 
Uh, I like to recommend people certain kinds of homework, like diversifying your social media. Um, so you start, even if you have a homogenous uh, group, because of the ways that things are set up, like even if you grew up in a homogenous way and your workplace is homogenous, social media is a gift, is a gift, gift, gift. And you can eavesdrop on conversations without bothering anybody and learn all kinds of things almost by osmosis. Well, that's good. What you just said there, again, it resonates because I talk a lot about emotional intelligence and cultural intelligence. And both of those first steps in both of those, emotional intelligence is about self-awareness, how you come across. And the, cultural intelligence is all around the drive to develop knowledge. So what you're saying here is you have to put the, you have to put the log, legwork in first. You know, Don't turn up and expect me to be your educator, which I completely resonate with. So you've got to have that drive. You've got to care enough about how you come across to build the knowledge and then for the knowledge, you build a strategy. So, yeah, having that groundwork is really, really important. I, I, I concur. So we, we, we have Google in our pockets, don't we? We have millions and billions of hours of YouTubes and podcasts and books and Amazon. There's, there's not a lot of excuse, really, for people not to do the basics, is there? Well, although I would say that um, publishing and Hollywood have been real gatekeepers. So... You have to have a little bit of critical intelligence and thinking about your sources, because if you just watch movies about a group, they might not have been made by that group. And if you just read books about a group, that might have been written by somebody who's out group. So that's one of the gifts from social media is this decentralization and the removal of the kind of the gatekeeping. Um, you might not get the knowledge from a book that you need, right? So, for example, uh, I recommend to people... Uh, let's just talk, use disability as an example. So people who are perceptibly disabled are low frequency for encounters for many people who are abled out in the world. So it's not frequently that they'll meet somebody who's deaf or hard of hearing or who's in a wheelchair or who's blind, For just for example. And so here's a thing where people suddenly are like, oh my God, I don't know what to say. And they're paralyzed. Or often when we're so self-conscious, um, the very, the last thing that you wanted to come out of your mouth, this happens to me too. When, I, when you're nervous, the last thing that you want to come out of your mouth is coming right out of your mouth. And you're like, oh, I can't believe that I said that. So I, I talk about this sometimes where somebody gets a bad haircut and in your head, you're like, don't mention the haircut. Don't mention the haircut. Don't. And then you're out of your lips comes, oh, you got a haircut. And then you have to make a comment on it when really you just wanted to say nothing. So what I like for the prep is, for example, I don't think in a book you're going to find stuff, but you can just go to Google or any search engine and type in problematic things said to wheelchair users, problematic things said to blind people, problematic things said to deaf people. And they'll just tell you like it's just out there. It takes very little time. So I would say even having these kinds of directed searches, if you're prepped and you're like, then then you're then you're ready, then you're ready to go. Right. So it might yeah. seem like you're trying to care about somebody. So let's say there's somebody in a wheelchair. And it might feel caring to you to say, oh, how, how is it that you're in a wheelchair? But I'm going to tell you that every wheelchair person, uh, every no, wheelchair person is absolutely not the thing to say. Your wheelchair user is what I was trying to say. Every person in a wheelchair, every wheelchair user that I've talked with or read things by or heard things by, they absolutely have no interest in explaining to you why they are in a wheelchair. And intrusive questions are incredibly common. And so something that might feel like caring or curiosity to you might land as very intrusive and inappropriate to somebody else who's just like, can we just talk about my presentation? Like, what, why, why are yes. we talking about how do I put on pants? Like, what, why, why is this now part of the conversation? We sit, we kind of make a bigger deal of it than it really is because that's our insecurity, or our nervousness, whatever it may be. I, I've got a, a great friend of mine. Uh, she, she's a, a black woman. She is a wheelchair user. She has cerebral palsy at birth and I remember we were going I think we were going something to eat I said should we just walk to the pub or something and I thought and I was go, oh my god I said walk to the pub you know you're a wheelchair user and I got all heat in my brain she said yeah let's go for a walk that's fine and so she she doesn't use necessarily different language she uses contemporary language around the activity and I was making a bigger deal of it than it was because I I picked up the word walk and is that ableist? And it turned out that I was probably over overcooking it. I think sometimes we just got to relax and, and learn about not, not necessarily taking every single word we say too literally and apologize for it, but just 
feel the mood, feel the feel the. If they said, "Oh yeah, I'll go, I'll go for," you can, you can. Uh, I, I've got my powered chair. I'll follow you. Whatever. Just pick up on their language. And and I would say that that's the kind of thing. Over apologizing is also a thing that I hear from people from marginalized and underrepresented groups who don't want to feel othered. Right. So my third principle is draw people in is the reverse of marginalizing. Right. Mm. So there's a lot of ways that we interact with people that highlight difference. People who feel like they just want to be there and belonging and just treated like everybody else um, end up feeling very othered. And so over apologizing is one of the things that happens. So I was talking to somebody who's non-binary and they have a manager who can't figure out pronouns at this point, like figure it out. Right. But so in early stages, we understand, and and as a linguist, I'll tell you that pronouns are different from other words in language, and we store them in our brain differently, and they're grammar words, and it's much harder to shift your use of words in this closed set of grammar words than, than other words. Like, you wouldn't change numbers very easily or prepositions, right? So there are ways that it is very reasonable to have a struggle with pronouns as people say, oh, actually, my pronouns are this. And you haven't had, unlike young people today, natively use they, them for a single person, right? But for a lot of us who grew up earlier, they, them was used for a single unknown person or for plural people, but not for a single known person. So it can be a real struggle against the weight of all the times that we've used only she or he to talk about people. So the thing that you do is you just do a, a minor correction Oh, yes, uh, so-and-so, she, oh, I'm sorry, they. And then you move on. But this manager was, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. I've done it again. Look at this. I really need to respect that you're non-binary and on and on and on. So the apology itself was a, a problem, was, was problematic language because it was highlighting the otherness. So I think that you can take the cues in the moment. Here's that intelli emotional intelligence and cultural intelligence. You're talking about having the ability to live in the moment and see, oh, I said walk, should I apologize? And you could say, oh my God, I said walk. And they'll be like, oh, no problem. And then aside, you don't have to worry about walk with them anymore. So these are the kinds of things that you file away in, in your mental database for interacting with that person. But P.S., just because one wheelchair user says it's okay to say walk does not mean you can apply it to everybody. So you got to suss that out person by person. Of course, yeah. My my experience is my experience, and uh, yours is yours differs. And uh, I mean, talking about misgendering, I I misgender myself. You know, I spent fifty two years of my life using one set of pronouns and referring to myself in a certain way. Um, for the last seven seven so years, I've used uh, she her, and it's I can't get it right every time. And uh, my wife is probably better at than I do. She never gets it wrong. Um, but I it was like our daughter's wedding. Uh, couple of years ago and I remember I gave and I'm still dad and still father to our daughter and so I'm extremely proud of of that in my life so I'm not going to lose that but I remember I did the father of the bride speech and it's, it's almost impossible to not use male pronouns in this because I said there's no there's no prouder moment in a father's life than when he gives his daughter away you try and say that sentence then when she, with the word she in there instead of he it, linguistically my head couldn't handle it so I did my, the entire father of my speech, and I said at the end of it, I, I've just systematically misgendered myself four times in this speech, but it didn't make sense to me to say it any other way. because. But that's my experience. There are, there are other people who want to identify as 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 mum or wife or whatever they do, and they use different pronouns. As I say, that's my experience. That's my that's the way I treat myself, and everyone else is different. So, yeah, it's you can't know everybody by knowing one person. And and I would add to that that um, not everybody uses they them pronouns. Some people who are genderqueer or another way non-binary will have pronouns that are very very low frequency. So this is again why I have these principles. Oh, to show respect and draw in this person, right? To show respect for them and draw them in, I have to remember that they're using fay fair, right? So th that's also a thing that happens. I think misgendering yourself is okay um, because of the complexities. I mean, that story is fantastic because it shows the complexities of being very prescriptive about how a person is supposed to be. And oh, and let me tell you this, that um, let's just go to gatekeeping, right? So this happens with disability. I don't know if it happens as much with transgender people, 
But people who are really trying to to walk the walk and be good and learning can get very judgmental and gatekeepy and will lecture people about the language they use for themselves. So I, I have a I read um, a few books uh, by disabled activists, and in one of them, one of the one of the authors talks about how she's a wheelchair user. And so the the question of and and in the UK and the US, people have landed on different sides of things. Do you say a person with a disability or do you, do you say a disabled person and which one is the right one? So I was listening to somebody recently who does research, disability research, and they publish in English for both a UK and a US audience. And so they're really stymied as to like, what do I do for the most inclusive choice? And so they, I think for those, sometimes you have to do a little preface and say, I'm going to be using this language. But in any case, this this wheelchair user named Emily Ledeau said that she would say she had switched over to saying disabled person and people would say to her oh no you should really say person with a disability and she would say but i'm disabled well don't talk about yourself like that i don't think of you as a disabled person right so i i i talk a lot about stigma stigma is a thing that happens a lot in society where a group is socially devalued is marginalized it's part of what comes with the marginalization and the lack of access to power is you get a lot of stigma where a group is just seen as less than, and sometimes not just less than, but but it's stigmatized in some way, right? So for example, people with mental health issues, that's very, very highly stigmatized. People um, people with disabilities, disabled people, depending on what people prefer. And mm-hmm. so you can hear that stigma in, I don't, don't talk about yourself like that, or I don't even think of you as disabled. I, I have Black friends who also people have said to them, oh, I don't even think of you as Black. And it's like, uh... Is that supposed to be a compliment? So there's that kind of gatekeeping. I can imagine a scenario where somebody who's being very assiduous and is just learning how to do pronouns, right, would come up and mm-hmm. say, whew, you really need to get better with your pronouns. Like I, I hear people who are in group getting lectured by outgroup people. And so part of my, this can be like a lot of navel gazing inclusive language. Well, what exact term, what exact term? And my feeling is by showing respect, you use the term that a person prefers. And if you're with a group of people who aren't monolithic, then you start to get complicated and you have to explain yourself a little bit more and say, well, for this group of people, I'm going to use the terminology indigenous, but I understand other people prefer native or, you know, you like a hyperlink or an asterisk and a footnote to say, I understand that not everybody likes this term. I'm choosing it for these reasons. So people know that you've put in the work rather than thinking that you're blithely just doing a thing because you don't know any better. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And often when I, I'm doing talks or, or running training, I would tend to use multiple ways of describing an identity, a characteristic, whatever it may be, in very short succession. So I might say a person with a disability or a disabled person as a matter of fact in a sentence. So acknowledging both terminology, and I, 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 sometimes I might even say, I know that people have a different way of describing themselves and I don't want to judge. I know that people are very proud of being disabled first and some people prefer to be described as a dis- person with a disability. Then you meet someone who, who has uh, neurodiversity and they prefer, to, or they, they use autistic person rather than the person with autism. They're very proud of the autism first. So it's a, it's a, it's a real minefield, as you say. You have to be very adaptable, very in tune, do your research, or at least your basics, as we talked about having that, that base level of research first. And uh, so we, we, as, uh, where I, I know there's ambiguity, I try and use all the different language I know to sort of say, well, this is the kind of, I, I'm aware of the discussion points around this, which is why I use both. And if people ask me to clarify, I say, well, I, I, I've got some great friends who really are proud to be a disabled person. I've got some great friends who prefer to be a person with a disability or a wheelchair user. And those kind of words. So, yeah, I think if you coach it in, it's not my language. It's words that I'm using that people have explained to me or, or their language. I'm, I'm just using the language I've been educated with by my friends and by my, my, my contemporaries. Um, which language do you prefer? Which is your chosen language? And it allows you to show that education um, without assuming or without using your own, if you like, bias or stereotype about people. And I find, so let me throw a term at you which is metalinguistic. So metalinguistic language is language about language. So I used to say meta, now it's a giant company. So I would say to people, go meta, and now I can't do that anymore. 
But I like to educate people. So I talked about uh, my superpower being seeing patterns, right? So when you explain patterns to people so they can see them, I, I think of it as giving people x-ray vision. How much can I, what, what is currently opaque to you or feels unrelated? And I can show you that I've been digging, digging, digging. And there are these skeletal structures that connect them all. Like, how can I show that to you? So if you can name something, if you can talk about it, it allows you to more fluently use metalinguistic language and talk about language. And talking about language is one of the best ways to remove ambiguity and to remove negative feelings and to let people know that you're aware of what you're doing and that you're doing it very intentionally and consciously. And it allows us to bypass hurt feelings and misunderstandings in, in all kinds of ways. So I, I, I do encourage people when it comes to inclusive communication to really be able to talk about language. And that's why getting educated about how language works really facilitates the ability. Because before I said, I, I, I said that I use, uh, I divide language into two sets or language practices into two sets. There's inclusive language, inclusive communication, and problematic language and problematic communication. Well, a lot of people don't have the terminology for what's going off the rails when communication is problematic, except for the language of social justice or language available to lay people, which will be terms like sexism, racism, transphobia, uh, homophobic. Maybe they'll say it's a microaggression. I find in my many years of experience, looking at what people are resistant to and what lands on people Everything I do is designed to bypass resistance and land on people, right? So they can internalize it, take accountability and say, oh, I should make that shift, right? And it's almost always a small shift. I have found that a very strong stress response trigger, a resistance trigger is using words like sexism and homophobia um, because a person may be coming in with very good intentions and just inadvertently say a thing. Sometimes people are being absolutely not inadvertently problematic. They are purposefully being problematic. And I have to say, I don't have time or energy for those people. Go be problematic elsewhere. I think this is the kind of behavior that can be a fireable offense. Like, I don't have time and energy for you. But if you really are a, a well-intended person who's like, oh, I got to shift my attention to impact, then I have to say that you can't use words like sexism or homophobia to tell people when they've said something wrong because they are going to shut down. They're going to feel very attacked. They're going to get very stuck in their own good intentions. They're going to get hot with shame. They're going to be filled with adrenaline and cortisol. And it might take 48 full hours for those stress chemicals to exit from their bodies. And so that's why another reason why I've devised these principles is if people are going metalinguistic and saying to somebody, hey, I don't think you realized there's this thing that you said or this thing that you wrote and it wasn't the right thing to say, um, let me explain it. And you can use, a, a, this violates a principle of inclusive language. It doesn't reflect reality because you've acted as if there are no non-binary people in the world when you said your husband or wife. And so you've got to switch over to spouse and partner because non-binary people exist. And so we need to reflect reality. That lands a lot, a lot, a lot better with people than... Um, than using the language of social justice, which may be merited, but doesn't land well with almost anybody. Yeah. It's the calling it out versus calling it in. It's the educational mm -hmm. element. As you say, if you start using words like privilege and the, and the other social justice words, it, people who hold those privileges, the majority, as you say, tend to shut down. And, I, and I, I'm a great believer that we need to collaborate rather than attack each other because what happens when privilege gets attacked it pulls the drawbridge up. It starts throwing rocks at you from the, from the ramparts. And you, you don't get anywhere. All you end up doing is having an argument amongst yourselves, attacking the castle. And so we've, we've really got to try and lower the drawbridge, lower the heat, lower the temperature, and have these, as you say, inclusive conversations where you're educating whilst pointing out a better way rather than just you're wrong. As soon as you put the hand up or the stop or the accusation, defense is hit. And you say the brain chemicals kick in, education stops. And, and I would add to that, that in my experience, the more granular you go and the more behavioral you are, rather than saying you're an X or you're Y, something that's sort of a, a large scale label, if you move away from telling somebody that they are something and saying, oh, here's this, this habit you have, or here's this tick you have, or here's this word that you use. If you go granular and you say, 
when you do X, it has this effect. It makes people feel disrespected or it makes people feel erased or you're hitting a pain point. And I don't think you realize that this word is actually painful for people who've had different experiences from you. If that that level of granularity where it's very specifically, mm. and I, I recommend in a, a workshop series, I have the SBI model for telling people when something has gone wrong. And I think that's a good part of calling in. So not my model. I forget who came up with it, but I credit them on the handout that I give. But it's a situation behavior impact. So if you go very granular and you say the situation is this, you said this thing, or the situation is we were in a conversation and non-binary people were there, or you sent out a press release and non-binary people will be reading it, or a range of people will be reading it. The behavior, you used the phrase husband or wife, and this leaves out non-binary people. The impact, people who have non-binary partners, people who are themselves non-binary are going to feel like you don't see them, you don't care about them, they're not part of your policy. You know, this thing that you said about you, including benefits or whatever, is something that sounds so mundane, right? We're including benefits, and for people who are married, your husband or wife can blah, blah, blah. Well, what if the husband and wife is not a husband or not a wife, right? So it can seem so mundane, but people who work for you can still feel so othered or forgotten about, well, Mm. do I count? I'm not a husband and I'm not a wife or my partner isn't a husband or a wife. So if you explain that impact, these people are going to feel othered. They're going to feel sad. They're going to feel disrespected. They're going to feel erased. So if you just make this little switch, everyone's going to feel included. People on ramp onto that much, much better. So that's my, I'm going to say something terrible. It's not terrible, but there is a research that shows that if you ask men, this is just going to be male specific. If you ask men, have you ever raped anybody? The vast majority will say no. But if you go granular, this is just like anonymous survey work, I believe. I have to revisit this study. If you go granular and say, have you ever done behavior A? Have you ever done behavior B? Have you ever done behavior C? And those behaviors are components of non-consensual interactions of rape. The number of men who admit to that shoots up by more than 100% of what it was. Mm. So people are not, this is to me a sort of an end case, right? But there are ways that, how are we making people feel bad and not caring about them? Inclusive language is still on that spectrum. It's still on the spectrum Mm. of other kinds of physical attacks, right? It's a verbal attack. So that's really where I take my granularity. Like if it works for getting people to be, if not accountable, then the first step of acknowledging that they've done something. If it works even for something as horrific and stigmatized as sexual assault, then I promise you it's going to work well for getting people in your organization to be more accountable for their uh, verbal problem, verbal problems they've created. Hmm. And I, by the way, I want to say that we're this is an oral um medium, you and I. But anytime I say speak and say, I am in my head, including sign languages. So I just want to say that everything I'm saying also applies to people who are speakers of sign languages and not just oral languages. Hmm. And that's important to make sure that we are enunciating, looking at people, respectful of people who have hearing loss or hard of hearing, where I see so many speakers on stage, they're turning their head away, they're not looking at the audience. So not everybody who is hard of hearing lip reads but there are a number of people who have hearing who still rely on that the visual and the audible to better hear the words properly so it's it's always important to to be consciously inclusive of the of your communication not just passively inclusive because you you know you're talking about uh, inclusive communication and problematic communication there's the bit in the middle really which is the uh, the inconsidered communication is where you're not being passive or negative deliberately. You're just not considering. And I think part of the, for me, part of it is making sure that we're actively thinking about your needs as a, as a, as a person. So if I am speaking in front of an audience or a workshop, whatever, I'm making sure that I'm, I'm, I check with everybody, ask if they have any needs in advance and reinforce that whilst I'm delivering. Is everyone able to hear me okay? Do you think I need to do differently? Can you see everything okay? You need to come to the front. Really, really overemphasizing and being overly conscious about it to make sure that you're not inadvertently problematic using your language there. And I had, um, for my book, I I either hired people or quid pro quo people 
for doing subject matter expert readings of things or lived experience readings of things. So I collaborated with two autistic linguists uh, getting their PhDs and studying not just autistic, but studying autistic communication, right? So real subject matter experts to bring in some autistic communications to uh, my book because historically I'm so deeply horrified by how my field has marginalized autistic communications and presented things. I very confidently would stand on a stage and say, all people do X. And now I'm like, mm, all holistic people do X, all people who aren't. Like, there's so many ways. All people are marking hierarchies all the time. Gender is incredibly salient and people really care about gender. I'm like, oh, mm, like that is really not true for so many autistic communicators. For them, power is not that interesting and gender is not that interesting, right? So there's so many ways in which I was excluding people. But, um, oh, I got caught up in the autistic thing. Uh, oh, I hired people to, so a person I hired, uh, he actually very recently passed away, which I am very sad about. He was a leader in uh, a new kind of linguistics called CRIP linguistics. So they're reclaiming the word CRIP, um, which was a very stigmatized word. Yeah. Um, but that was, before, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, with reclamation. So you take the word that's been used mm. against you and you use it in group and you give it power, much like queer, mm. uh, the N-word for some people yeah. who are Af African descent, not all. So that's the process of reclamation. And so in the book, I had asked him to read very carefully. I, I was so careful. It took so much effort for me to say, okay, you're reading as a black person and a disabled person. Here are the relevant pages, right? I was so careful for the people doing me this favor. And then he just went and read the whole book, um, which was good because he had a lot of comments on stuff. But at the, at the beginning of the book, I, I compare communication event planning to regular event planning. I'm saying, look, if you've ever planned an event, you've had to think about who's coming to the event and think about what their needs are and take them into consideration. A lot of people get so paralyzed with fear when it comes to language. But I'm like, this is a transferable skill. Have you planned an event? You can plan a communication event. Do you have to send out a, a press release? Do you have to do an internal email to the whole company? Are you going to create a video? You know, like all of these things, especially for planned communications, right? Like if you can plan a party, you can plan communication. You just need an inclusion checklist. Like you have a party checklist, right? So in the book I had written, um, have you ever gone to an event where you felt like you were really taken into consideration? Like people had really thought about you and really thought about your needs and you really felt included in the event. And this reviewer, a professor of linguistics said, I've never been to a non-deaf event where I felt this way ever in my life, ever in my life. He was in his 40s. And it was so, it sat like I honestly teared up. I'm tearing up right now thinking about it because I had just asked him out of respect for his fantastic linguistic skills and his knowledge base, right? And I just asked him to read specific pages and then he went and read additional pages because he was curious. And then he just put that thing in there and I just, it stopped me. I had to close down and take a walk mm -hmm. around the block and just think about, I'm very lucky that I was born into the body I was born in, in a lot, a lot of ways, right? And it hadn't occurred to me that being born into a body that was hearing and mobile, mostly abled, I'm not fully abled and I'm not fully neurotypical, which I learned later in life. But I was born into a body that made it so I could very, very, very often feel like I belonged in places. And here he had had experiences where unless he was in his specific group, if he was not in his specific, specific group of deaf and hard of hearing people, he never truly felt taken in, into account. And that was a really brutal place for me to sit. And I'm, I still sit there sometimes. Yeah, I, that reminds me, I'm a, I'm a, a member of the Professional Speaking Association in the UK and Ireland. And uh, we had, we organized two sort of national events per year. And we were approached, because I'm on the board, we were approached by someone who is neurodiverse. And they came to us and said, it would be better if. So they came with that. I, I want to help you improve the event for me, for others who are neurodiverse or neurodivergent, some people prefer the term neurodivergent, um, or people who just maybe have some anxiety about walking into spaces they've never been to before. It would be better if, you know, you put chairs at the back of the room so people don't have to walk into the space. They can just sneak in, sit at the back, become comfortable before they find a chair, uh, have walkthrough videos so that before they turn up, they can see the entrance, they can see the walks we had to get from A to B, 
Um, you narrate things that are happening now and next, those kind of things, uh, putting good signage, having a quiet room. And so we, we went through this whole whole thing and the feedback we got from the, from, the, from, the, from the delegates who went, and we've just run another one two weeks ago, was that they found the communication was so powerful because they turned up, they knew what they were going to expect, they, they'd have seen the venue, they knew where the reception was, they knew where the, the venue was. And this is people who were cast themselves as neurotypical. So not only, in a, in a lot of the work I do, I'm sure a lot of what you do, it's what helps the one actually helps the many. And that's what we're doing here. We're not saying it's just for you. It's actually you're, we're benefiting the entire cohort or the communities that are involved, not just providing access for someone who has a disability. Like I, I, I'm getting, I'm not in my late fifties. I'm not saying I'm getting on, but sometimes I don't want to walk up a flight of stairs. So for me, it's important to have a, have an escalator, a lift, or a, um, elevator or something. And I, you know, I'm not. I don't consider myself having a disability. There are people who maybe go skiing, break their leg. They were okay last week. They're not good this week. So we're providing accessible solutions, not just for people who have a, a lived or a born disability. We're providing anyone who comes into that in their life. So what you're saying there about your examples is about creating solutions for the one that benefit the many. And you don't know who that many is. They're just they're just there and they appreciate you. You've cared about them. And, and I would say... So a lot of companies don't want to invest in talent retention. I'm just going to put that right up front. Yeah. I look at where the budgets go. And right now, DEI budgets are being slashed. But so people are willing to put money into talent acquisition, into client acquisition and client retention. And then there's that quadrant of talent retention where they're like, oh, we don't have the budget or it's a nice to have. And I'm just like, I'm right now trying to lay out what are the consequences of when you don't put money into workplace culture because it's very expensive. So I'm here in tech. There's a lot of engineers making 200, 250K a year dollars. And if you lose them, if you lose a 200K engineer, it's at least 300K that year to replace them, right? Because the, of, of all of the losses. So when you don't, so for example, I talk about inclusive meetings. Um, when you're trying to design a meeting that is inclusive for somebody who is autistic, somebody who is a speaker of English as their second, third, fourth, fifth language. A lot of people are much more multilingual than where you're sitting or where I'm sitting, depending on where you grew up. Uh, if you are making inclusive language for people who are um, I mean, inclusive, inclusive meetings for people who are uh, come from a culture where you have to have everything in order before you say something. So for example, a lot of Native American cultures here, especially on the West Coast, you're supposed to go off and practice on your own. And it's in, in the height of rudeness to bring something half-baked, right? Like you have to come. So if you do these things for these kinds of cultural diversity, you make inclusive meetings, guess who also benefits? Your introvert white male engineer, right? Like, like there are ways in which people think that the benefit is only for a certain kind of person. And I'm like, everybody wants to work in what I call the optimized workplace. Mm. So I just call it the optimized workplace. And I'm like, bias gets in the way. And the optimized workplace is where everyone feels seen, heard, and valued, where they feel like they belong, where they're able to make contributions and aren't blocked, and where they feel safe, right? Psychological safety. It's very basic. And I'm like, guess what? Guess who likes to work there? 100% of people. And my data on optimized workplaces comes from business studies. It doesn't come from DEI studies. It's like, oh, here are the best run companies where people really like to work. They've got incredible retention rates. They're incredibly productive. And it aligns 100% with diversity, equity, inclusion um, initiatives. So to me, that's 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 evidence. That's yeah. what we call valid data validation, right? And so people often don't think that way. But what you're talking about is exactly that example. And I'll add another to it. I um, present a lot right now much more virtually, but often in uh, in person, it's coming back. And recommendations for like keynote speaking, they're like, use 10 slides maximum. And I'm like, mm, no, because I know a lot of people aren't great with only audio, like if you're a speaker of an oral language, it doesn't mean that you're great with only auditory comprehension. And so when I have an important thing to say, those words are on the slide in big letters, high contrast font, 
black and dark blue on a white background. And I will see people can read them as I'm saying them because those are my punctuation points. So back in early rap and 80s rap, it would be where everybody comes in and says the thing and then you go back to the one person, right? It's kind of doing like a little Beastie Boys moment here. But people are very grateful. People are like, I yeah. really understood you in a way that I don't understand a lot of other presenters because I'm thinking about, and so many people use um, closed captions now, right? Um, people have gotten very used to streaming with closed captions because mm. that extra bit of uh, information for language is helping their language processing. So by the way, what you talked about sounds, for me, I, I can be anxious coming into a new space and everything you said, I'm like, oh, that sounds amazing for coming mm. into a meeting and already know where I'm going to sit and stand and I can come in and what's happening next. That's the best. Yeah. And the feedback, you know, the quiet room, there were people who just wanted quiet. They didn't want to talk to anybody. They wanted to, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a self-confessed and out and open introvert. I, I can do an hour or so. I can go full max for an hour. Then poof, I'm, I'm, I need the recharge. So I'll just go and lock myself away. Uh, it's nice. You haven't got to justify yourself or, or say to people, I don't want to speak. You just, everyone knows if you're in the room, you don't speak. You just have your own little space, play a bit of candy crush or something on your phone, do whatever you're going to do, just check out. And it, it really is powerful. And I, picking up on what you say about slides, there's a, there's a kind of a, a thing around professional speakers about, you, you know, true professional speakers don't need slides. They just stand up on stage and it's the power of their voice, the storytelling. And yeah, great, brilliant. But, I'm a great believer also in, as you said, the the slides. There are people in the audience who will zone out. They'll they'll they, yeah, English is not their primary language. They, they'll forget what you're saying or they miss something. I'm I'm the same actually. I I sat I was at listening to some talks at this conference last week, and one person was working through this exercise and they had this model called SOAP S O A P, and. They gave a little card. You're supposed to write this little thing down on the card. Then, then you had to tick at the end of it, which whether it was an S, whether it's no, whether it's A, whether it was P. And I kind of zoned out in this in this talk because I was so engrossed in what this person was saying, and my mind was exploding in different directions. I th I got to the end. He says, "Right now, I want you to do this." I thought, "Okay." Um, and there's nothing on the card that says what soap means. His slide had gone, and, I, and I'm going. So um, I don't know what I can't remember what it stands for. So I went out to Austin and said, look, if you're going to give it, give it his card, put it on the back, put it on your slide, do something. Because people like me who zone out, they realize at the end they need to learn what they, should, they missed, can't go back. And another speaker did the same. She had an A, B, C, D, E model. And she put A and she put a list of things under the A. Then she put a list of things under the B. But she, when she clicks on the B, the A ones disappeared. I said so to the end. I said, brilliant, but you know, I zoned out. It wasn't until I got to the end of the E that I suddenly thought, I wonder what A said. I wanted to go back. It was too late. So I couldn't go back to the A's. And I said, what would be, be better if, you know, kind of thing, is instead of blanket out, just gray it out so you have a bright and a, and a, and a, and a dark. So you, you've, taken the, you've taken the focus off of it. But for me, I can just go back and go, oh, yeah, I remember. I remember. Because my attention span just doesn't hold that long. And I didn't. I learned that about myself last weekend. I was zoning out. It wasn't because I wasn't paying attention. Is because what they said sparked me in, in a all these things were firing off, and I didn't know how to come back. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even call it zoning out, which feels a little too self-deprecating to me. Mm. I think it's more that they didn't signal to you that this was a thing you were going to have to retain, right? They mm. didn't signal to you, here's a thing, I need you to take this away, and it's too much for people who are. So I, uh, I'll tell you, um. I mean, I'm a professional linguist. I learned two languages for my dissertation, like learned in my 20s, two languages, and then went to Russia for a year and studied how one language was affecting the other in all these different mm. ways, right? And I cannot learn things without visual cues. I would have to write down if there was a new word, I would have to write it down. Mm. I remember one time I was with my parents on a, what, what's called Navajo reservation, but they, they prefer the term Dine. And so we were talking and they were supposed to visit a, a Hogan with an elder and I wanted to speak respectfully. And I said, can you teach me a few things to say to be respectful? And they said them and I'm like, uh oh, and I found a scrap of paper and a pen and I said, please tell me again. And then I wrote it down using a phonetic alphabet and then I was able to say it. But as a professional linguist, a professional language learner in some respect, 
without a visual cue, I couldn't even do it. And I would say the same about song lyrics. I couldn't tell you what any song is about if it's just going in order. If I don't see it all in one place on a piece of paper, then I'm like, oh, that's what the song is about. But I'm a native speaker of English and some people enunciate well. And I couldn't tell you what almost any song is actually talking about. So I think that for many of us who are processing, if you're processing things through time, if there's temporal distance, that there isn't the same kind of retention. If something is gathered for you with a different kind of input written and you can see it synthesized all in one place. So I don't even, I, I, I reject your zoning out and say that, um, I would say that you were doing what's natural for an engaged audience member and uh, there needed to be supplemental things if somebody really wanted you to take something and turn it into active knowledge on on your behalf, so. Yeah, no, I, I, I take your charitable definition and I agree with you, so yeah, absolutely. I was using zoning out as my kind of shortcut to how I would describe it, but you're right, I was probably acting very typical in that I, until I need to know, remember something, or until I know I need to remember something, I probably don't. You have to punctuate and say, this next this next word is worth remembering. It's like it's, it's the other thing, isn't it? If someone says, uh, "Would you like a cup of coffee, Stephen?" You don't hear "Would you like a cup of coffee" until the word "Stephen" is used. So if you say, "Stephen, would you like a cup of coffee?" You know that whatever's going to come next is an instruction or a question or something for you. So it's about making sure you cite. And I think you said it earlier: say something as a warm up before you want to say the main point. Otherwise, you've got to get people back on the page. Right. I'm going to say something really interesting now, and this is it. So, you, okay, I'm back. I'm back in the room. And I think that's that's what you're trying to say there is you've got to give the people that, that audible or visual cue. Yeah. The next thing that follows is for you. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I think is also interesting, let me bring it back to inclusive communication in a less, uh, hey, if you're a speaker, do these things. Although I completely agree. A, lo- a lot of people don't get good training on how to speak to people, and then it shows but um, bringing it back to inclusive language, there are people who are worried that they're going to sound very woke or not on brand uh, if they use more inclusive substitutes, right? So I, I, I have a, I'm on retainer for a financial services company and they send me things. And so they're like, well, what would you do? And I'm like, but my brand is inclusion. So what's correct for me isn't like I see you as three years, five years behind me. Right. Like there's stuff that I'm using now that five years from now is OK for you to use. But I don't I think it's too soon for you to use now, given who your audience is. They've got 23 million customers or something. Right. So I'm like, let's be let's be up more cautious. But so, for example, I say to people like, well, I don't want to sound woke. Um, and I'm like, but you don't have to sound woke to be inclusive. So one thing is here's an important term. Terminological precision is a thing that I said during my book launch a few weeks ago. And a few people came up. So when I'm talking about inclusive language, I'm saying I want you to be precise. And there are times that you're saying things that are actually imprecise. So let's move it to the more precise thing. If you're saying husband and wife, that's imprecise because there are people who don't fit in those categories. You think you've included everybody who's legally bound to another person in a romantic relationship. And I'm here to say you have been imprecise and you've forgotten people, right? So terminological precision. So people, for example, think that guys includes everybody. And I'm here to tell you that there are semantic tests that show, yes, you're, for, for the listener, Joanne is shaking her head saying, guys, it does not include everybody. So, but there are people who are very resistant and they say to me, guys includes everybody. And I'll say, okay, so I'm going to a bathroom, the loo, as it were, in a, a restaurant and I am female, assigned female at birth, female to this day. And the first bathroom door that I see, because I'm here in the U.S., says, guys, do I walk into that bathroom and think it's gender inclusive? Or do I walk down the hall and look for a bathroom door that says gals or dolls or girls? I'm not walking into the guy's bathroom because I know it's a bathroom designated for people who are understood to be male, right? So I say, you don't have to sound super hippy dippy or California woke or whatever. If you say, so if, if you're going to, every time you're going to say guys, like let's say you're a manager running a meeting, and every time you're going to say, hey, guys, all right, you guys, all right, guys, let's move to this. I said, you can just switch it up. You don't have to use the same thing. So you can start by saying, hey, everyone, let's start. And OK, team, you did a great job. OK, folks, let's move on. And I said, you know who's noticed 
nobody's noticed. Nobody's paying attention to the fact nobody's going to, but you know who's eventually going to notice, like your non-binary or female team members who suddenly realize that they, like when they're in a meeting with somebody else who's saying guys all the time, they're like, oh, they're like, oh, Mike never says guys, right? So it's going to be some sort of retroactive credit you're going to get, but they're going to just feel better. And to my mind, that's the majority of inclusive language. It's not designed to signal how good a person you are. It's designed to have set things up for comfort, just like all of those careful things to talk you through, to talk an attendee through what the meeting was going to be. It's the same thing for all of the interactions, whether they're one-on-one, a meeting, uh, uh, all-hands meeting, speech, it's a, 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 an email to the entire company, et cetera, a Slack communication to everybody. But that's why I say communication and language and a set of practices rather than focusing on on words. Yeah, for sure. I, what I've um, found is you could, you could just put the full stop earlier in the sentence. So instead of good morning, sir, good evening, sir, you just put the full stop after good evening or good morning. It's easy. Just don't say any more because... Our natural politeness, maybe as, a, as an English speaker, our natural politeness is that we want to sort of use this familiarity terms. But if you just say good morning, good afternoon, or how are we doing? Everything okay with you today? Uh, good morning, everybody. Hi, everybody. You know, great, great to see you here, team. Have you, you know, those, those kind of things are, are really great ways. Just, but as you say, if it, you want, a number of times I'm standing on the platform at train station, and they say, ladies and gentlemen, the train now arriving at platform two is for Cardiff. You go, what about what about my friend? Where are they going to go? <laughs> so yeah, oh, you're not right. you're not talking to them. And it, right. you know, and every time a, a, a speaker or people I hear uses the phrase "ladies and gentlemen," I always think all the people it's excluding. Or if you have a slide where you're putting stats, and demographics, and you've just got male and female on it, you think, well, even if even if people who are non-binary or gender non-conforming are so significantly non, you know, insignificantly represented on the statistic. Is that having you stop you having a, a column showing zero to at least you've thought about it? And uh, what I always say to people is, if you try Googling, do a Google image search for guys. If you think guys are gender neutral, do a Google image search and tell me how many people don't appear to be men in swimsuits on the first five pages. Yeah, most of them are men in swimsuits on the first That's five pages. An intriguing result. What I also say is... Um... Uh, another example I like to give it, it, we call it a semantic test or a heuristic, right? So what can you go through and test and see what's mm. the gender referent involved is um, uh, two coworkers, one's moved there recently and they're both male and uh, they're both straight. And one says to the other, so how many guys have you dated since you moved to town? Right. I know it can be hard yeah. to meet people here. It's a small town. Does Is that like a, 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 a regular thing to say to does this person like of course it doesn't invoke no. dating everybody it's very so a, a nice example I like to give um let's just get historical here um how does it feel when a word has genuinely changed the gender of the kind of person it refers to let's use the word girl so it's 1350 and I say girl and then I say things in English that whatever I'm not going to try um, but so I'm speaking in 1350 English and I use girl. And if I write girl, I spell it with a Y. And I point to two people. Uh, one of them appears to be a young male person and one appears to be a young female person. I can be referring to either because girl in 1350 refers to boys and girls. It is gender agnostic. It is what people claim guys is. Girl is absolutely referring to anyone who is a young person. So sometimes you can say girl and mean somebody who is a young male person. But cut to, there was a gender shift, uh, and so now it refers only to young female people. So we know what it feels like when a word has genuinely changed the referent of its gender, because nobody's going to say girl and think of young male people, although we're being more careful with gender now, right? But anyway, but, oh, look at that group of girls over there, and it's a group of boys playing football or whatever, right? And I, I meant uh, soccer. Um, so anyway, that is, I think, a... a I like that counterpoint. Does guys feel like it's shifted all the way? No, absolutely. Will it shift in the future? Possibly. I, I don't, you know, you can't, like semantic shift is a thing you can look back on, but you can't look forward at. So 
it's most prevalent here in in restaurants. The meet and greeter tends to say, "Hi guys, can I get you a table?" And it's kind of, and I, I don't want to make any stereotypical accusation here, but it seems to be imported from the uh, the North America as a as a kind of a cultural thing. And yeah, in 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 the UK, we kind of picked up on it, and it's it's as bad. I mean, I'm not a big fan of folk or folk and the uh, high folks and things like that. That's kind of again, it's like forced English, you know. In, you have to try and make the language sound natural and inclusive without it being, as you say, woke or deliberately inclusive, just naturally inclusive. I think that's... I don't say folks either. And, you know, people write to me and they're like, well, what do I... Or they ask a question, what do I do about sir and ma'am? Especially people in the American South or people, uh, Black Americans are often raised that they have to say sir or ma'am. And I'm like, ooh, we don't have one yet. I'm like, I'm waiting for the young people to come up with a gender-neutral alternative, but we don't have one. I said, so you got to maybe do politeness and tone. So if you're going to walk up to somebody on the street, so if there's somebody you know is male and wants to be called sir, then fine. If there's someone you know is female and wants to be called ma'am, then fine, or madam, right? But uh, if there's somebody you don't know on the street or the next client or the next customer, you can't do it. So you have to use it. Well, you were saying good morning, right? Mm. Instead of sir, you know, or you just just drop it off, right? And you can just say, oh, excuse me, like you can try to do it in tone or you can say, oh, the I think the person in the green shirt was next. Or instead of saying, hi, guys, you can say, oh, yes. hello, everyone. You know, is your uh, folks doesn't feel natural for me at all. For some people, it's a very natural word. For me, it feels very artificial. So I recommend that people use it if it feels good in their mouth, you know, but if it doesn't feel good, dump it. Like, that's okay. There's plenty of other things to say. It's funny you said that, you know, describe someone as the person over there in the green shirt. I, I tend to wear a hat um, I've got a couple of hats, different colored hats. I tend to wear those when I'm at events and speaking and things like that because I want to give somebody an easy way to describe me rather than get confused by my gender identity or you know, use my obvious characteristic as a description, you know, the trans woman over there or something. I, I, you know, I give them a, yeah, the lady in the hat or the person in the hat or the person with the yellow tights or something like that. So I try and give people a, a very easy way of, of recognizing me and spotting me when I walk in the door. Uh, as part of my personal brand so it it does help sometimes to signpost yourself in a way you like to be signposted but I, I think it's an excellent example of the extra labor that people have to do in order to make sure they're treated well i think about all the black women i know straightening their hair for mm. example or yes all the yes. work that people do in order to make sure that's your labor to prevent negative things being said like you're you're helping people out but it's also protection for yourself because you've made it easier through your labor but i long for a world where uh people already have very fluent ways of referring to a person that they don't have to go right to gender identity and already are thinking maybe gender identity isn't relevant to how i describe a person right so on that note, on that note, it's been an amazing hour having a chat with you and obviously the 20 or 30 minutes beforehand in the green room where we just got to know each other. Uh, Suzanne Wertheim, tell me about your book. Tell me about how people can get in contact with you because I know the listeners of this show would love to, love to make contact. So what's the best way of getting in touch? Sure. So uh, you can find the book. The book is called The Inclusive Language Field Guide. It is available all the places books are sold, including uh, it's being, if you're in the UK, there are a few bookshops there that are stocking it in person, uh, paperback. It is a paperback. It is an ebook. And if you thought I have a nice voice, you can listen to it for seven hours and 56 minutes narrating the audiobook. Um, although I do have to warn you, there is a table at the end that I read for 30 minutes. Um, so the audiobook might not be the best, might not be the best option. Um so if you want to find me, the best way to find me is SuzanneWertheim.com. If you want to connect with me, you can contact me there. Uh, you can sign up for my free newsletter, which I send out twice a month. Once a month, I send out an inclusive language article about something often topical. And once a month, I send out an advice column so you can write to me and get free advice. It's fully anonymized. And people, well, I recently covered Sir and Ma'am, for example, and people are like, I don't know what to do. Um, and people also like to follow me on LinkedIn because I do write articles on topical things 
they're often topical in the U.S., but sometimes they're topical on a more global level. So I will give the analysis and show the patterns that people aren't seeing or give the names for things. Oh, this is an example of inflating language. When the white basketball player did it, nobody complained. And when the black basketball player did it, there was an outrage on Twitter. And so that's a double standard using what I call um, inflating language, et cetera. So website, LinkedIn, and all bookstores. Absolutely also. As you were talking there, I nipped onto Amazon, into Audible, and I just purchased your book uh, <laughs> using one of my Audible credits. So that would be something Lovely. I listen to on the train. So I'm looking forward Lovely. to that. Having having chatted for an hour, I'm really intrigued to get into the into the yeah, the nitty gritty and the weeds of this and find out more about it. So no, absolutely fantastic. Lovely. And I read it slow because there's a good number of linguistic concepts and sometimes people take time. So if you need to speed it up, it's read slow enough that it works okay for 1.25 speed, I believe. So ah, okay. I was That's very okay. deliberate in the speed because I know that when people have new concepts, sometimes it just takes a while. You just need a little, you just need a little more time to hear that new word. Yeah. I, I, we picked up on my, my terminology about zoning out. Sometimes when I'm on audio books, I find myself zoning out or, or hyper-focusing on the previous thing and then I have to stop it, rewind and go back again because I realise I haven't listened to about five minutes worth. So, yeah, I, I, I do regularly uh, rewind and, and play at different speeds or, or, or pick my moments. So I'll, I'll enjoy that. So thank you very much. I love it. Well, thank you again. This has just been such a pleasure and such a nice conversation. I really genuinely enjoyed it. Thank you. And obviously, thank you to you, the listener. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for getting to the end. I really appreciate that. Of course, if you're not already subscribed, please do subscribe to keep updates on future episodes of the Inclusion Bytes podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, share the love, share the episode. I've a number of other exciting guests lined up over the next few weeks and months. And of course, if you'd like to be a guest, please let me know. I'd welcome any feedback or suggestions to joe.lockwood at cjnchapman.co.uk. Let me know how we can improve the show, if that's possible. Finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.